So in the 19th century, the word wheel was used to often describe a bicycle. A male rider was called a wheelman. A female cyclist was called a wheel woman. And wheeling is what you did when you went from one place to another on a bicycle. So this is the story of some of those early wheel men and wheel women and some of the adventures they had wheeling through Yellowstone. As you may know, on March 1st, 1872, President Ulysses S. Grant signed the legislation that established Yellowstone as America's first national park. And initially, the only way visitors could access the park was by horse or in a horse-drawn vehicle. These are actually visitors at the base of Mammoth Hot Springs. But in 1883, all that changed. The Northern Pacific Railroad completed its transcontinental line across the United States. Now people wishing to visit Yellowstone simply had to purchase a ticket and travel to the park from the east or the west. The town of Livingston was established and soon became the primary transfer point for passengers making their way to Yellowstone by rail. The Northern Pacific constructed the park branch line, which ran from Livingston south through the Paradise Valley and on toward the park's north entrance. The park branch line ended at a place called Cinnabar, located about three miles north of the present-day Gardner, Montana. And then from there, passengers disembarked, boarded the stagecoaches, and then completed the eight-mile trip up to Mammoth Hot Springs. The Northern Pacific helped finance the construction of a number of grand hotels around the park, such as Mammoth Hot Springs Hotel, shown here. A typical visit to the park lasted between about five to ten days. Yellowstone's roads were notoriously bad. Steep, rocky, covered with deep ruts that were often filled with sand. Even so, just 11 years after the, parks, the park first opened, small groups of visitors were willing to try a new form of transportation to let them go through the park, the bicycle. During the 1870s and early 1880s, the high-wheel bicycle had become the most popular form on both sides of the Atlantic. Enthusiasts were eager to prove that where the horse can go, the bike can follow. First person to ride a bicycle in Yellowstone was W.O. Owen. Together with two companions, Owen took the train from Laramie, Wyoming to Monida, Idaho, and there they hired a horse and team to carry their gear their three bikes, and themselves into the park. So whenever road conditions permitted, they hauled the bikes out of the wagon and then tried to ride a little bit. Owen later wrote an article for Outing Magazine in which he described his trip through Yellowstone in terms that would be useful to any other bicycle tourist contemplating the same journey. So this was in 1883. By the way, in 1933, 50 years later, Owen, now in his 80s, got back on that bicycle and posed for this picture. He's, the wheel is 47 inches in diameter, so he's up in the air quite a bit. And so he rode the bicycle, got the picture, and then donated the bicycle to the park. And we still have it. It's in the archives. So this is his Columbia bicycle, and you can see it at the Yellowstone Heritage and Research Center in Gardner. Meanwhile, back in the 1880s, it was not easy to make a long-distance trip on a high-wheel bicycle. By its very design, there's just not many places to strap anything to carry with you. So that meant the rider put as little as possible on the handlebars or on the frame and carried the rest of it on their back or shipped it ahead. 
Because it was impossible to mount and ride a high-wheel bicycle in a skirt, the only option available to women who wanted to ride bicycles were to ride in a four-wheel tandem bicycle like this or an adult tricycle and thus avoid moral hazard. In 1884, though, the domination of high-wheel bicycles was challenged when the British firm introduced the Rover Safety Bicycle. So now you got two wheels of similar size, a diamond-shaped frame that was much lower to the ground, chain drive, direct steering, and the Rover promised cyclists, of, regardless of their age or gender, with a safer and eventually less expensive way to enjoy the thrill of riding a bicycle. Once they hit the market, safety bicycles encouraged a generation of women to discard their corsets and long skirts and try some new style bloomers and take to the roads. However, not everyone agreed that bloomers were the appropriate apparel for women cyclists. In 1894, one such critic, Mary Sargent Hopkins in the New York Times, declared that wheeled women should avoid knickerbockers, trousers, and any startling outfit that has a tendency to bring bicycling into disrepute. She further argued that a woman could move much more freely and comfortably in smooth, well-fitting hosiery and tights, and a skirt which does not cling and is properly lined and shaped. The skirtless woman, she declared, is robbed of all grace and dignity, whether mounted or walking beside the wheel. You could ride a bike in a skirt if you had a drop-frame bike, so that's what the bike manufacturers realize. There's a lot of women with money because they're working now, so they built drop frames, and that's when that started coming out. In 1893, more than a million bicycles were in use in the United States. Instead of gathering around the piano, attending church services, or the theater, increasing numbers of Americans preferred to spend their weekends riding bicycles through the countryside. For some, even longer adventures were planned. In 1892, an accountant named Frank Lentz, dressed in black in this photo, left Pennsylvania and embarked on what he called the World Tour Wheel. And Lentz wanted to become the first person to ride a safety bicycle around the world alone. On his way across the country, Lentz took a side trip to visit Yellowstone. I would by no means have missed it, he wrote, though it cost me five precious days. So on the first day through the park, Lentz took this picture of himself next to a rock formation called Liberty Cap. The Mammoth Hot Springs Hotel can be seen in the background. This is about the same shot today, so the Liberty Cap is still there, and that's the fourth version of the Mammoth Hot Springs Hotel in the background. This is also one of the last sites a cyclist sees before going further off in the park on a road whose elevation climbs a thousand feet in four miles, so it's still a brutal climb for cyclists any time. About five miles from Mammoth, Lentz took time to look at another rock formation. This one's called the Pillar of Hercules, and it's at the entrance of a narrow canyon called the Golden Gate. When this photo was rediscovered a few years ago, some historians saw the words Golden Gate. It's a little fuzzy, but that's what's written on it. And they mistakenly assumed that Lentz had taken the photo when he was riding somewhere near San Francisco. But it's a Yellowstone picture. In the 1890s, there were no boardwalks or fences to keep visitors away from the park's thermal features. And so, as a result, Lentz stood as close as he could to Old Faithful so that he would be in the picture when the geyser erupted. So that's him down at the bottom. Took all these pictures with the... He had a wind-up clock mechanism on his camera, so he set it up. He carried 45 pounds of gear on his back so he could document his trip. And then he had this timer, and then he would uh, snap the pictures. 
Lenz's uh, World Turtle Wheel nearly came to an abrupt end during a stop along the Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone. While photographing the lower falls from Lookout Point, a gust of wind blew the cap off his head, and it blew 60 feet over the edge down to a little rocky crag. <coughs> Normally you'd leave the hat, but he pondered everything he had to do, thousands of miles to travel, and decided to climb over the hill and go down and get it, which he did. And then when he wrote about it later, he said, one misstep and I would have been precipitated 1,500 feet below into the Yellowstone River rushing through the canyon. This is roughly the same view that uh, Lentz took. In the 1890s, by the way, the north rim was the only side of the canyon where there was an access road. Lentz completed his 82-mile whirlwind tour of Yellowstone. He was photographed shortly afterwards on the street of Missoula. And then he continued on to the coast. He boarded a ship, sailed to Asia. However, he never completed his journey. He was last heard from in April 1894, two years later, somewhere in Iran, and it's believed that he drowned crossing a rain-swollen river. His body was never found. Another cyclist who toured Yellowstone during the 1890s was named Wade Warren Thayer. Thayer and two companions got off the train at Cinnabar with their bikes, strapped all of their cooking utensils, foodstuffs, blankets onto their safety bicycles, and set off to wheel through this wonderland among the mountaintops. So Thayer and his friends made the obligatory stop for pictures at the Pillar of Hercules, but they soon discovered that wheeling through Yellowstone frequently meant having to ride in the wake of a caravan of stagecoaches filled with dust-covered sneezing passengers. Rather than stay in expensive hotels, Thayer and his friends rigged up a makeshift lean-to shelter along the way, such as this one at Apollinaris Spring on the way between Mammoth and Norris. Like nearly everyone who walked, rode, or wheeled into Yellowstone during this period, Thayer and his party did not hesitate before pushing their bicycles right onto the fragile soil of the park's thermal features so they can get a good picture. So here they are posing next to Grotto Geyser down by Old Faithful. So don't bring your bike and try and do this now. We, we don't let you do this. By 1898, the, the Burlington and Quincy Railroad better known as the Burlington Route, was actively promoting bicycle tours in Yellowstone. One of the railroad's brochures suggested the best way to make the trip is to organize the group of not less than 15 persons. This is a group in front of the Mammoth Hot Springs Hotel. With that many people, a tourist sleeping car can be chartered for a very reasonable price, hauled to Cinnabar, and then parked on a siding until it's needed for the return journey. Cyclists were encouraged to bring as little baggage as possible. A sweater is a necessity. Heavy shoes should be worn, tinted glasses to protect the eyes from the dazzling effects of light upon the white geyserite plains and terraces. Those were essential. The Yellowstone bicycle tour was not only expensive for most Americans during the late 1890s, it required a great deal of physical stamina. One wheelman who had ridden through the park warned about the steep grade between Mammoth and Golden Gate. He wrote, a grade of 366 feet to the mile is one which not even steam has been able to conquer. And yet here we are, trying to climb a grade that steep with our bicycles, walking, pushing, and occasionally riding a little way. The most famous group of cyclists to ever visit Yellowstone Park were members of the military. The soldiers were photographed while posing with their bicycles on the travertine formations of Minerva Terrace at Mammoth Hot Springs. However, these soldiers were not stationed at nearby Fort Yellowstone. They had ridden into the park from their home base at Fort Missoula, Montana, nearly 300 miles away. 
Fort Missoula was originally established in 1877 to protect the Missoula Valley from possible Indian attacks. In 1886, the fort became home to the 25th Infantry Regiment. The 25th Infantry was an all-black unit with white officers. By the 1890s, their primary duties were drilling, performing band concerts at civic events, and escorting Flathead Indians on annual bison hunts in the Missoula Valley. I'm sorry, Mission Valley, north of Missoula. In 1895, 2nd Lieutenant James A. Moss, a recent graduate of West Point, was assigned to Fort Missoula. An avid bicyclist himself, Moss had read how armies all over the world were studying the military potential of the bicycle. Moss received permission to establish the first unit of its kind in the United States and to test the bicycle as a means of transportation in mountainous terrain. Again, they're not trying to replace the horse, they're just trying to augment it with something less expensive. Moss obtained state-of-the-art bicycles from the A.G. Spalding Company in New York, then the leading seller of sporting goods in the United States. The bicycles were specially modified to, for the testing that Moss planned to conduct, and then Moss returned to Fort Missoula with the new bikes, and soon members of the newly formed 25th Infantry Bicycle Corps could be seen riding on daily practice drills. So Moss and his men had to carry everything they needed on their bicycles, so a system of efficient packing was devised. The bikes themselves weighed 26 pounds unloaded, and then each one was loaded up with about 70 to 90 pounds of gear, and these are on inflatable tires on wooden rims, and uh, so they were pretty heavy once they were done. Every member of the Bicycle Corps, including Lieutenant Moss, shown here, um, carried a knapsack, a blanket, and one half of a two-man tent with poles strapped on the front of his bicycle. A drinking cup was tied under the seat. Half of the cyclists also had a haversack tied to the diamond frame. The other half of the men carried rifles strapped to the horizontal bar. Moss had argued that a soldier falling off a bike with much weight attached to his body was much more likely to become injured than if his, his limbs were unhampered. The heaviest bike in the bicycle corps carried all the cooking gear as, as well as tools and spare parts. So they had to put extra forks on the front of the bike just to hold the weight. So this guy was the mechanic and uh, this is his bike weighed almost 100 pounds by itself. At 6.05 a.m. on Saturday, August 15, 1896, the bicycle corps departed Fort Missoula and then started running into bad roads. So, these bikes had no changing gears, so when you start getting up a hill, you've got to get off the bike and push it. So, and sometimes that was easier than going on the roads with all the ruts and the rocks. When the roads be were just too bad to use, Moss would have his men get on railroad tracks, and then they would push along the ties. Not ride, but they would ride along and push the bikes that way. At least it's flat. The grade is a little better. Unless a train is coming, then you've got to hurry and get off the tracks. On the second day out, one of the soldiers got too sick to continue, and so they left him at Drummond, bought him a train ticket, and then he apparently came back to Fort Missoula, and then the rest of the men went on. Moss and his men arrived on uh, August 23rd, eight, eight days and 300 miles later, and they checked in at Fort Yellowstone. So this is um, Fort Yellowstone at Mammoth, as it looked around 1895. The first stop was park headquarters. The U.S. Army had been assigned the duty of managing and protecting the park, a task it had been performing since 1886. 
In addition to building roads, protecting thermal features, and dealing with visitors, the Army played a key role in preventing the illegal hunting of wildlife within the park's borders. These are a collection of bison heads that had been um, collected from a poacher. The troops stationed at Fort Yellowstone were members of the U.S. Cavalry, so they patrolled the park on horses. Sometimes when the Bicycle Corps picture is shown in Yellowstone, it's assumed that the Army also patrolled the park on bicycles, which is not true. They, they use horses. After spending one day replenishing their rations and mounting brand new tires on all the bicycles, the Bicycle Corps began its tour of Yellowstone Park on the morning of August 25th. The men essentially followed the same route other wheelmen and wheelwomen had taken before, riding from Mammoth South towards the Norris Geyser Basin. The Army had constructed soldier stations, there's some little buildings along the side there, at major junctions along many of the routes in Grand, the Grand Loop Road. And since the Bicycle Corps was a military unit, Lieutenant Moss, Lieutenant Moss planned to stop at some soldier stations for lunch and to spend the night at other soldier stations as they made their way through the park. After lunching at Norris, Moss and his men rode on towards the Lower Geyser Basin. Moss wrote, for miles we fared along the windings of the road, now admiring this, then admiring that. Indeed, this was the very poetry of cycling. Moss planned to spend the first night at the tent encampment near Nez Perce Creek, uh, where one troop of cavalry was stationed during the summer. This tent encampment was located just north of and to the west of Fountain Hotel on what is now Firehole Lake Drive. The Fountain Hotel, one of the largest in Yellowstone at the time, looked out upon Great Fountain Geyser, which in the 1890s was a major attraction in this part of the park. Great Fountain erupted nearly every hour, and its 200-foot bursts of steam and water captured rainbows in its spray, and it was really extremely popular with visitors. For most of the trip to and from Yellowstone, Moss's men slept in the little two-man tents they carried with them. There just weren't enough accommodations for them to sleep indoors at military spots. So sometimes they stayed in a barn or a ranch house on their way back, but normally they were in those tents. The next morning, August 26th, Moss and his men set out for the Upper Geyser Basin, nine miles away. Among the sites they planned to visit was Old Faithful. Although it went off quite regularly, it was not deemed as exciting as Great Fountain. And in fact, there were no major hotels there either at that time. There were just some some floored tent encampments. Old Faithful Inn wouldn't even be constructed for another seven years. Even so, Moss made sure that he and his men were photographed riding as close as possible to Old Faithful <laughs> as it erupted. The Bicycle Corps continued on towards the southern end of Yellowstone Lake. The men soon left the geyser basins behind, behind them and found themselves in densely timbered mountains with steep grades. The soldiers had to dismount repeatedly to push their bikes uphill through dirt and dust and ankle-deep sand. They finally reached the soldier station at the edge of the lake and stopped for the night. When this Lieutenant Moss and his men were finishing breakfast and packing up the next morning, several tourists came by into the camp and were taking pictures. A black soldier was asked where he expected to go that day. The Lord only knows, the soldier replied. We're just following the lieutenant. <laughs> I should mention a lot of these soldiers had never ridden a bike until two weeks before they made this trip. So uh, they got in a lot of practice and drill. But remember, infantry walks everywhere. So this was considered, you know, sure, I'll ride a bike, no problem. The Bicycle Corps broke camp and rode off into the Hayden Valley and made its way towards the Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone. 
Again, Moss and his men stopped for lunch at a soldier station located near the Lake Hotel. Built in 1891, the Lake Hotel remains the oldest continuously operating hotel in the park. During the stop, and this is a picture that Moss snapped, uh, it's the soldiers lined up being inspected by two black bear cubs. And if you look on the left, there's a tall post with a platform on the top. And even though poaching was illegal and the soldiers were protecting the wildlife, a number of the soldiers trained pet bears and they, they'd climb up the tree because black bears like to go up to climb and they would sit on that. First that, meals on wheels. Yeah, <laughs> so anyway, uh, they were inspected. Apparently they passed inspection. No one was lost or injured. Moss and his men rode on to the canyon and rode along the North Rim. Then as now, one of the most popular activities was taking the brink of the Lower Falls Trail. Has anybody here done that? Where you climb down and stand on top of the waterfall? Yeah. Okay, a few of you have. The dirt trail descended some 600 feet from the canyon rim along a half mile of switchbacks. Despite that, Moss and his men pushed their heavily loaded bikes down that trail all the way and then they posed for a picture at the end, and then they watched the Yellowstone River plunge 308 feet down to the bottom of the canyon. Then they had to push those bicycles all the way back up that hill. And the view, this is what it looks like today. You can see some visitors in the corner. So it's still a remarkable view, but it's, it's paved now, but it's still quite a climb. It's half a mile down and 10 miles back up by the time you That's what it feels like. <laughs> Once at the Overlook, the Moss and his men were photographed there, as I said, and then they came back. And on August 29th, they rode through the Golden Gate by the Pillar of, of Hercules, had lunch at Norris before that, and then they came through. Moss later wrote that his men had been delighted with the trip and had been treated royally everywhere. I think the moral effect of the seething water, he wrote, the roaring of the geysers and the sulfuric fumes was more conducive to good order and military discipline than a dozen courts. Over the next two days, August 30th and 31st, Moss and his men rested at Fort Yellowstone. It was some time during this rest break that the idea of photographing the bicycle corps on Minerva Terrace came up. Such a thing would be easy to do because there was a photography studio right across the street from the fort and with just across the other street from the hotel. This is F.J. Haynes' studio. He was the um, see the elk antlers in the front and elk actually grazing on the other side. Haynes was the official photographer for Yellowstone Park as well as the official photographer for the Northern Pacific. And so we strongly believe he was involved in, in taking the actual photo. So getting up on the terraces was not really a big problem because there were no boardwalks and people were doing it all the time. The only rules were don't write your name in the bacterial mats and don't break anything and take souvenirs. And of course, everybody obeyed those rules. <laughs> so Moss Haynes actually took three pictures of, of Moss and his men. So here they are. They have to go from ground level and climb about 150 feet to get up to Minerva Terrace. And so here they are pushing their bikes up what looks like snow, but this is actually travertine, which is calcium carbonate deposited by hot water on the surface. This cannot be done where the water is flowing. And so if you've been to Mammoth Hot Springs, it's not all wet because we don't have enough water to cover all of the rock 
all the time. So they're going up an area that it still would be not easy going. And you see they don't look like they're having an easy time. <laughs> the other picture is taken at the top of an urban. So now they're riding around an, an inactive vent and the buildings of Fort Yellowstone are down below them. Again, could not do this if it was active water. And then the most famous photo is this on Mammoth Hot Springs. And again, they're not standing where the water's actually flowing, they're standing in an inactive area. This would have been an amazing picture if we could have seen it in color. I mean, the soldiers are in blue uniforms, the bicycles are black frames with white towers, tower, um, tires, excuse me. And then coming along the edges here, you would have had orange and brown thermophiles. It just would have been stunning. Might have looked something like that. This is actually a photo that was touched up using the 19th century dyes about 90 years later. And this gives you an idea of what it might have looked like to F.J. Haynes as he snapped the photo. And then Moss and his men left the next day on September 1st, headed back to Missoula. After battling stiff headwinds, miserable road conditions, gumbo mud, cold drizzling rain, Moss lamented that all the poetry of military cycling had vanished. Five days later, when this picture was taken, Moss and his men had become lost somewhere trying to cross the Continental Divide. Eventually, they did make it to Fort Missoula on September 8, 1896, after riding a total of 791 miles in 24 days. The difficulty, that includes the whole part. The difficulty of the journey was apparent in this detailed information from his official report. The last column, next to the last column on the right, it says grades. And if you slide down, it basically says nearly all up, nearly all up, nearly all up, nearly up and down, nearly all up. So it was, it was a steep ride to go anywhere in the park on a bicycle. Moss wrote up an account of the course ride during 1896, and it was published and distributed uh, in pamphlet form by Spalding's company, which made him not only a celebrity among civilian cyclists, but he became quite an expert in uh, military cycling as well. As a result of that, Moss received permission to create an even larger bicycle corps consisting of 22 men. He proposed to take this unit on a more ambitious ride in 1897 from Fort Missoula to St. Louis, Missouri, 1,900 miles one way. That ride was to St. Louis was approved and it turned out to be the most difficult thing the bicycle corps had ever done. With the exception of actually being under fire, Historian Charles M. Dollar noted, Moss and his men experienced all of the hardships of the campaign. Thirst, hunger, ill effects of alkali water, cold, heat, and loss of sleep. This photo was taken in Livingston. They rode through Livingston in 1897. They didn't come to the park. And they looked tired already. And uh, it was just a grueling, grueling trip. Despite the success of this trip, the Army canceled all further bicycle experiments after the outbreak of the Spanish-American War in the spring of 1898. And after that war was over, uh, they realized that gasoline-powered vehicles probably made a lot more sense than military bicycles. <laughs> in the years immediately following the Bicycle Corps' visit to Yellowstone, other cyclists continued to wheel through the park. However, the numbers of wheelmen and wheelwomen dropped dramatically after August 1st, 1915. That was the date when automobiles were officially allowed to travel through the park. Just one year later, on August 25th, 1916, 
the National Park Service was established. This new agency assumed responsibility from the Army for managing and protecting not only Yellowstone, but all of the nation's other national parks. And by the way, next year is the Park Service's 100th anniversary. So we're encouraging you all to find your park, whether it's Yellowstone or Teton or whatever it might be, but it'll be a big deal. Save the date, August 25th. Although Gardner is going to be packed, so try not to go to Gardner on August 25th, maybe, unless you've got a place to be. That decision to bring automobiles into the park had a dramatic impact on the way visitors enjoyed it. So just a few years earlier, where you might have seen cyclists posing next to Old Faithful, now you saw visitors posing next to Old Faithful in a car. It's much more common to see that. As larger and larger numbers of cars began coming into the park each year, motorists demanded more facilities that could accommodate them. So here is Old Faithful in 1963, taken from the roof of the Old Faithful Inn. And the sheer number of vehicles also had a tendency to clog the park's roads during busy summer season, something that we're still dealing with every single season. Even so, there are still people who choose to tour the park solely by bicycle. And even though those modern cyclists ride much more sophisticated bicycles with scores of technological advantages, they still face many of the same challenges that the wheelmen of the 1890s did. Long distances between destinations, steep grades, thin airs, and they also have to encounter things that 1890 cyclists didn't, like lots of cars and trucks and really big RVs. A person riding a bike through the park also needs to take special care when sharing the road with wildlife, like a herd of bison. But even with all of these challenges, most modern cyclists would probably agree with those intrepid wheelmen and wheelwomen from over 100 years ago. The prospect of wheeling through Yellowstone was definitely a trip worth taking then, and it's definitely a trip worth taking now. Thanks very much.